Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about A View to a Kill, starring Roger Moore, sort of, Tanya Roberts, Grace Jones, Robert Brown, Christopher Walken, and Lois Maxwell, directed by John Glenn. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Arnie, with a podcast to a kill. But before we start, I need to say, neither the name Arnie nor any other name in this podcast is meant to portray a real person. I think some of our listeners would agree with that. I love that you did that. That's brilliant. Good for you, man. Good for you. I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, and I just forgot about the disclaimer in the beginning of the movie. (laughs) My first note is, what the hell is this? Mental note, ask Brock, because that confused the hell out of me. I immediately had to look up, what is Zorin and who did they sue? No one, actually. They found out after they started filming or whatever that there actually is a company named Zorin. And so they didn't want to imply that their CEO is some megamaniacal maniac who wants to kill a lot of people. Isn't that at the end of every credits? This is fictitious, no similarity to anybody living or dead is purely coincidental. Did they have to put it at the beginning? I really felt that this was something done perhaps just for the DVD release or the high-def encore broadcast. I can't believe this was there from the beginning without a lawsuit. That's insane. They put that in every credits. It's like starting a movie, no animals were harmed. We know. (laughs) Filmed in Panavision. Thank you. More to the point, would anyone mistake the things that go on in this movie with reality? I mean, really? (laughs) Does this plot strike you as if something that could have maybe kind of sort of happened? I don't think so. (laughs) You always hear about these steroid babies from the Holocaust coming back, working for the KGB (laughs) to create microchips that are nuclear war proof, but get whatever. We'll get into it when we get into it, but I think we're getting back into Moonraker territory as far as crazy plots. I mean, View to a Kill is another of the infamous Bonds. I think when people rank Bonds, this is another one that people tend to hold up as being one of the worst. Whether fairly or not, we'll get into that. But I do feel like it's got a really bad rep. It sure does. And one of the big things people complain about is how old Roger Moore is to play James Bond. He was like 56 years old at filming, 57 by, I think during filming, he might have had a birthday, whatever, old to play James Bond. And he even admits himself he was too old to play James Bond. But get this, at the beginning of the last Roger Moore podcast, Octopussy, we were talking about how they actually had screen tests for some guys who were going to replace him. They didn't think he was coming back. There was nothing, nothing that I could find that at any time, Did they have any doubt that Roger Moore was coming back for this movie? Octopussy was a big enough hit. He actually beat Never Say Never Again Gross with Octopussy. It was a huge hit, comparatively speaking. So 
I was blown away that at no point he had decided to retire from Bond before this movie started. His own words were, when he found out that his co-star's mother was younger than he was, he realized it really was time to stop playing Bond. (laughs) Cracks me up. That is a telling moment, and it is very, very true. I mean, Roger Moore is very old here. We've all complimented his vitality. He has always cheated death and seemed 10 to 15 years younger. I don't think that he exactly looks 60 here, but when you consider the fact that his era of James Bond always required a lot of stunts, I do feel like he is way too old to play that fool game of which one is it Roger Moore and which one is the stunt guy. I mean, I do feel like in this one, I think Roger is probably mostly off camera in the rocking chair. (laughs) And then when they need a reaction shot, they go to him. I'm not even sure he stands up for it. I mean, he really is not trying very hard to do the physical work. There's parts in this where he's quote unquote running up the steps of the Eiffel Tower. At no point do I see him going up more than one stair. I almost said in the beginning, and in close-ups and standing still, Roger Moore is James Bond. (laughs) But I opted for the sort of instead, not to put a too fine a point on it, because we all know that when James Bond runs to (laughs) grab onto a bridge that's... elevating itself that clearly the thinner younger man jumping it's not roger moore how much more fun would this movie be if they had actually dragged roger moore's ass up to the top of the golden gate bridge i mean can you imagine (laughs) the outtake reel and how good that would be to see that poor man up there if they had really done these stunts with him i just the movie would have suffered for it they obviously had to get professionals to give us some sense of vitality but wow it's glaringly obvious i mean it could have been any worse than if they got that waxwork thing that Scaramanga had in his Room of Doom, that fake James Bond mannequin. I mean, it's coming to be that close at this point. I will admit that I did have a fun game when watching this movie. I watched it with Marjorie, and it was just fun to go, not him, not Roger Moore. And I said that a lot during this movie. If it were a drinking game, you would have passed out before the halfway mark. In fact, I wish I'd thought of that before watching the movie. It would have made the whole evening better. But you know what? I loved this movie as a kid. This may have been my favorite, and some of it had to do with the residual goodwill of Duran Duran and Grace Jones and computers and just all the things that they play with here were a part of 80s culture. I mean, they were really in the thick of my childhood at this point. They were playing with all the things that I was really paying attention to. It's the last movie of James Bond I saw in theaters until Die Another Day. Really? Yes. At the time, it was my very favorite. And this one, I've been kind of letting listeners in on my growing awareness of James Bond. For Your Eyes Only was the first one I knew of. Octopussy was the first one that roused my curiosity, but not for the right reasons. This was the first one I comprehended. And for that, I have to credit MTV and Duran Duran for ads that ran in heavy rotation and a music video that was in heavier rotation. And I wanted to see this movie. I thought that that car chase with the car that was broken in half looked really cool. I didn't end up seeing it for another five or six years because one friend of mine who wanted to go had already gone and told me, meh, it's not that good, and the rest of my friends didn't want to go, but this was the one that first made me think, maybe I should check out this James Bond. Those scenes look kick-ass. And I have very vivid memories of sitting in the theater next to my brother, and when the Beach Boys came on in the beginning scene, I started cheering. Yes. Little 10-year-old Brock. I'm like, this is awesome! And I've seen this movie 
probably not as much as Octopussy, but many times because when I really was getting into James Bond, this was the brand new one. And of course, when you're 10 years old, the brand new one is always the best. Yeah. And so I loved this movie as a child. And I had the 45. I can't tell you what the lyrics mean to that song, but I think it's a kick-ass song. I mean, if you do a dramatic reading of what the lyrics are, beats me what it's about. But I love the song anyway. It's just one of those things that this movie has memories for me. And so to watch it objectively here is the goal <laughs> for me. It's not so hard for me because I probably did see it on TV right when it came out or rented it because VCRs were just coming into play and we just had one. So I probably saw this movie one more time since theaters, but I have not seen it in many decades. So Arnie, refresh my memory. What's the plot? When Agent 003 is killed in Siberia, Bond must recover a microchip the agent had recovered. But analyzing the chip, Q realizes the chip is identical to the nuclear explosion magnetic pulse resistant chips developed by the British government and being manufactured by Zorin Industries. Realizing Zorin must be selling these chips on the black market to other world powers, M assigns 007 to the case. Bond tracks Max Zorin, played by Christopher Walken, who is in the process of a very expensive racehorse auction. Bond poses as a buyer, but recognizes Zorin's lover and bodyguard Mayday as an assassin who killed Bond's contact in Paris. It's finally revealed Zorin is the product of Russian experimentation using steroids to build better soldiers trained by the KGB. But the steroids made him insane. He turned his back on the KGB and now plans to take over the world's microchip industry, an industry currently based in Silicon Valley. But Zorin's plan was to buy oil rigs in the area and pump tons of water into the California fault lines, causing Silicon Valley to sink into the ocean. The world would think it a natural disaster and Zorin would hold a monopoly on the microchip market. It's Goldfinger. Bond goes to California and teams up with geologist Stacy Sutton, an oil heiress whose rig Zorin is trying to buy, and the two discover Zorin's plot and go into the mines Zorin had dug to plant the bombs. One of the bombs goes off, but again, because he's insane, Zorin decides to detonate it with his workers, including Mayday, still in the mine. Mayday gets pissed and sacrifices herself to help Bond get the second bomb out of the mine before it detonates and thus averts the disaster. Zorin then tries to make his fast getaway on a blimp, but Bond pursues, eventually tying the blimp to the Golden Gate Bridge. Zorin falls from the bridge to his death, but his creator, ex-Nazi Dr. Carl Mortner, was also on the blimp and is enraged at the death of his pseudo-son, so he tries to throw a cartoon-like bundle of dynamite at the secret agent, but fumbles it and drops it in the blimp, killing him and Zorin's other bland henchmen. This leaves Bond and Sutton time to do another type of deep drilling as credits roll. So, Brock, you said this mid-plot summary, this is Goldfinger, and now I'm realizing the Bond formula is kind of like the Coke formula. You may change it a little bit as time goes on, but if you change it too drastically, people will revolt, so you just keep giving them the same thing again and again. And here we are, again! Honestly, I think the script was done as Mad Libs. You guys remember Mad Libs? It's like the boilerplate is the same, and then you're like, give me a noun. Okay, Fabergé egg. The sunken ship. There's like one thing that changes, but the story remains the same. Someone just said computer chip, and that became View to a Kill. Okay, so it's Bond has to fight evil organization, who has a mad industrialist, who is trying to make noun and take over the world. That basically the Mad Lib? <laughs> 
these screenwriters have been coasting on the same script and maybe a dollar on erasers, particularly with Moore. I feel like with the Moore years, yes, structurally, they obviously wanted to be like, how do we give Roger Moore his Goldfinger? This is it. But I feel like in particular, this one feels so much beat by beat, like Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only, Moonraker, all these things, the structure, the feel, your appeal to them is really going to come down to how much do you like the nouns and adjectives that got added this time? Did you want to go to space? Did you want to go underneath the ocean? These are the things that matter because the boilerplate is not going to change here. Yes, the villain is fairly clear-cut from the get-go in this one, though, unlike the last two. So they have that going for it. But yes, the beats are there. And we've been saying this for a long time, though. You know, it really depends on if you like all the elements, whether or not you like a James Bond film. I don't think that this movie's similarities to Goldfinger are a problem. I think Goldfinger wanted to eradicate gold. He wants us to corner the Silicon Valley chip market. I don't think it's a liability in that situation. These movies have always been put together this way. Oh, we saw its cool little plane. Let's put it in the movie, find a way to make a sequence about it. They did that for how many movies? You know, they found something else on the radio and they put it in a thing. This is how these movies are made. So it's really about, are you going with it? Can you have fun with it? Do you like the villain, the girl, the gadgets, etc.? And this movie is the epitome of that. You're going to go with it or you're not going to go with it. But then you do have this strange disconnect because you are pulling nouns from weird places or different short stories or what have you. It's a Fabergé egg that leads to a nuclear bomb. And here it's like, well, yes, he's going to destroy Silicon Valley, but at first he's really into horses? I mean, like the A plot and the B plot really have nothing to do with one another at all here. I feel like a lot of the first half of this movie comes from books I read. You know, I covered the books and nachos, Diamonds Are Forever and Moonraker, and I really feel like they took a lot of elements from those, particularly the horse racing stuff that I loved in the Diamonds Are Forever novel that never got made it into the movie. I was happy to see them kind of repurpose it here, but it makes no damn sense when Bond gets the tip that, okay, there's microchips out there that are nuclear warproof, so let's find out the guy that's making them and see if he is on the up and up with his thoroughbreds. Yes, but I think... The idea of investigating the guy to see if he is in the up and up leads us on this little diatribe of thoroughbreds. But the reason he was there, you're, you hit the nail on the head. They're trying to investigate this guy. Then they find out he is dirty. You see, and then it goes into his main plot. I understand where they want to take us. I'm not saying I can't follow it. I'm saying that it is an entirely different thing. What Bond should be doing is being concerned about the KGB getting access to this technology that presumably they're the ones that would detonate nuclear weapons in space that would eradicate our toasters and nuclear defense systems. And that's what they're worried about. Whether this man is giving steroids to horses is not Her Majesty's concern. I just always feel that Bond is investigating this just as a way to get to the larger plot. Because of Mayday and everything else, I mean, they know from that really stupid scene where all of MI6 goes to the track in their Sunday best that Zorn's the bad guy. They know this from the first frame of the film. So the rest of it is just for show. Absolutely. And like I said, it's going to come down to these elements. It's, will I like the bad guy? Will I like what the henchman's doing? Will I like these things? I do like the fact that Moneypenny's still here. I thought they were kicking her out. I thought Smallbone was going to take over, but we do get one more go-round with Moneypenny. I imagine this might be her last. It is absolutely her last, and the very reason I mentioned her in the credits 
14 movies. I think she deserved to be in our opening credits at least once is my tip of the hat to Lois Maxwell because when they bring in a younger Bond, they clearly can't have a younger Bond flirting with her. Why they didn't just keep Smallbone this time, I don't know. I'm glad they didn't. I like Money Penny. I don't care how old she gets. I will miss her. She's a great constant. This was the first time I was thinking it was time to hang her up. She was too grandmothery. We talked in the last podcast how Roger Moore appears to have made some devil's deal to stay looking young. And even though the deal is starting to reach its peak and he's starting to age, it's nowhere near how much money Penny has aged. And seeing him looking at putting a hat on the hat rack again, calling back to those young days of Connery and Money Penny, it made me sad. <laughs> She really depressed me just to see the withering effects of aging over such a short period of time. I wanted to weep for her, and I just don't want to see her back because she depresses me. <laughs> I don't think it helps that she's in this pink dress. I mean, it makes her look like Minnie Pearl, if you guys know the hee-haw reference. There is a very tragic quality to that outfit. It's played for comedy effect. She's going to the races. Bond is trying to imply that it was the wrong choice. It exaggerates what we have been observing. You're right. It's only been, for us, a month or two. Of course, it's been decades, so the ravishes of time. But you know what? I am not going to attack this woman for getting old. It happens to all of us. I still find her a delight. Even now, I don't care. Maybe it is time for her to hang it up. Maybe it is time for Roger Moore to hang it up. But if this is their swan song, then I'm celebrating it. Yeah, I agree with that, Stuart. I got no problem there. When I saw her dress, I really thought that she was either going to a wedding or a funeral. I thought maybe she was finally getting married and going to bid Bond adieu, and it would be her swan song there, or they were going to kill her. I didn't think they were taking her to a racetrack to hang out with some other horses. Oh. Do you think that Roger Moore got some work done? Because in a couple of shots here, I think he may have gotten an eye job or something. Not that it's anything wrong with that, but that's the impression I got with that devil's deal you guys mentioned. It's actually documented. He had just gotten out of some cosmetic surgery before this. Mm. Well, they're old. I mean, I think you can make light of it, but there's nothing that can be done. If they've chosen to go this route, then there's nothing we can do other than wish them the best. You know, that's what I'm trying to do here in the beginning is being like, well, this is the last one. I am comforted to know that everything will look very different next time. And so I'm hoping I am going to a wedding and not a funeral, Arnie. I am hoping that this is going to feel like a party and not like a sad state of diminishing return. I'll admit, it seemed like to start a party because while the classic skiing opening scene was many movies ago, this one I often think of as one of the most memorable Bond opening scenes because this is one of the films I've seen the most just in rotation and this 80s skiing with him snowboarding to the Beach Boys was something I did remember coming in. I didn't remember loathing it as much as I did this time, but I did remember it. I think it works. I'd never seen snowboarding before. Apparently, this gave attention to the sport. It was yeah. around back then. I was watching it this time. It has been quite a few years since I've watched this movie, I have to admit. It's been at least a solid, I'd have to guess, 12 to 15 years. I remember watching it on VHS in the 90s, so I guess the last time I remember sitting down to watch it on purpose. Maybe I've seen scenes here and there. So... When watching it again this time in this opening sequence, knowing it pretty well, when he goes across the water on the snowboard, I said out loud, okay, that's pretty freaking cool. Because that's really pretty freaking cool. Regardless, it's not him doing it. And he's in like two quick shots in the scene until he gets to the iceberg thing. I think the stunt work is fun. I think the entire scene works. It's kind of light. 
but it's fun. And you said a minute ago, if they're going to bring it to this last adventure, I think this opening scene does bring something that shows us there's some life in this still. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I feel like they're heading back to Moonraker territory. I feel like they know they can't take this seriously anymore. Not that Octopussy was the portrait of restraint, but I do feel like for your eyes only, they had played with the idea of making this a slightly more edgy Bond with Roger Moore in the lead. And as he gets older, as he looks more and more feeble, it does become about, well, hey, let's give him this frilly hoodie and give the stunt guy some yuck-filled kind of stunts. We can play with ironic music. I mean, for me, it's the beach boys that really makes me go ugh you know that, that's moonraker that's a moonraker joke and i just want them to be careful because moonraker ultimately was not recommend because they played with this kind of fire it kind of put me on guard but my guard relaxed as soon as we got to the opening credits because i'll tell you guys right now when this is all said and done and you ask me my favorite Bond song, it's A View to a Kill. I could have told you that before we started the series. <laughs> that was a given. First of all, I would dare say most of America agrees with me as it's the only Bond song to hit number one on the charts in the States. But beyond that, I'm a Duran Duran fan. I'm married to somebody who is actually in the Duran Duran fan club. We had front row tickets to see Duran Duran in concert last year. They still rock A View to a Kill live really hard. It's a great song. I forget it's a Bond song because I listen to it so often on the Decade CD. Not that I listen to CDs anymore. It's on my iPod, but you get the point. <laughs> yeah, Arnie, it's a great song. I had the 45. I listened to this thing to death. It's a great, great song. I can't tell you what the lyrics mean, but I enjoy the song. It has a great thump to it. It's just a classic to me in Bond era. To me, it's definitely top three also because it's so much fun. I've heard it so much and I enjoy it. I cannot dissociate the song, though, from Bond. I can't, because my 45 had little circles of all four of the leads right there on it. I had that burned on my brain. And, of course, when Simon the Bond at the end of the video says, Bond, Simon the Bond, that's burned on there, too. So it's very much a James Bond song for me. The funny thing is, John Taylor, the bassist, actually went to Broccoli and said, when are you going to get somebody decent to do a song? And that's how they got the gig. They were lifelong Bond fans. I mean, they're British. They grew up. Who's the biggest British icon? Who's what little British boys want to be when they grow up? James Bond. And despite the fact that he's f***ing John Taylor, play that f***ing bass John Taylor, he wanted to be Bond. And so he went to Broccoli and said, let somebody decent do your song. Let us do your song and created the best song ever. Then we're in agreement because Rita Coolidge, they needed to get the hook on her. I'm with John Taylor at that much. As far as the best song ever, I'm not going to go with you guys. My top five is really, really crowded. I think it's going to eke in there, maybe somewhere in the top five, but it's already packed. It's definitely not number one or even in the top three, but I've always appreciated the Bond songs that strive to do something different, that step outside the box. Something like Paul McCartney, you know, it just felt like so different than what they had been doing. When they step outside that mold, it can be so rewarding. And I think this one was a step out to think about a current 80s pop group. They probably were uncomfortable with that to some degree, because how do you trust those guys. And of course, John Barry's working on this music. That helps with the transition. But it was a risky choice in the sense that probably from their standpoint, they didn't want pop stars mucking up their classic sound. But it works. It totally works. This song is great fun. It does still get me. It makes me think about roller skating. Honestly, if I think about the days in the 80s where I went to a roller rink, it was this song that really made me push myself and try to do a loop-de-loop -loop or something like that. Well, I disagree that 
they would be hesitant. I mean, while they didn't go out seeking this, this movie feels to me like the first one to embrace what I consider the big 80s aesthetic and the MTV style. It brought MTV music. The opening credits remind me of Duran Duran's Rio video more than anything. And with the California Girls song, the entire thing, including the casting of the villain, just screams, we're trying to grab the new generation. Like Money Penny, Bond fans are getting old. If we don't get some new blood, maybe not in the role of Bond yet, but in the audience, we're going to lose them. I I totally agree, and it would have made sense to bring in a new guy into this one, because you're right. When you look at what the stakes are here with microchips and computers and hell, Q has this little robot dog thing that I think I wanted for Christmas. I think there were things like that on the marketplace. Clearly, they wanted to reinvent this for the 80s. I totally agree with you. There was a desire here to seem hipper. You know, there always has been with Bond. They've always been jumping on trends. But here I really felt like they were jumping on a new generation. They were trying to get us to care about Bond in a way that they had never gone after before. But all the 80s trappings here, it's still got a class to it. What I'm impressed with with this opening sequence is even though they're going with hip Duran Duran, they kept the women thing. They do day glow. I was just like, hey, this was right in the 80s. Those day glow colors. I mean, it was so much more classy than Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. I thought they did a really good marriage of seeming hip and seeming like every other Ian Bond. I mean, up to this point, I wasn't crazy about the opener, but I do think, yeah, it sets the right tone for where you want to be this many movies in. You're absolutely right. And it's, again, surprising they have Roger Moore in this. You brought up that dog robot. I couldn't stop thinking of the Rocky Four robot. Same year, same amount to do with the plot. <laughs> completely useless. They bring it in the beginning of the movie just have it at the end. This is dumb. And another childhood favorite of the 80s, since we're talking about it, you know, beyond robots and Duran Duran, I was always really big on Christopher Walken. And I don't know why that is. I really think it comes down to Dead Zone. I saw that movie early and often, and his performance in that and Brainstorm, and then later with Communion. I just always liked his weird kind of eerie presence. There was just something about him that I always wanted to watch Christopher Walken movies. As strange as that sounds, some people you know, in the 80s were into Arnold or Stallone. Like, I never cared about those guys. I would have much rather watch Christopher Walken in anything than those big 80s stars. To me, he was a big star and a big get. And I imagine this movie was a big reason why I was a fan too. I also was a big fan of Christopher Walken though I didn't see him much. It primarily for me also was The Dead Zone which I saw just before A View to a Kill came out. It was on TV. I was really getting into Stephen King around that time. Maybe we'll get to some of that someday. But I only saw his more mainstream stuff. Seeing him as a villain here, though, seemed like a perfect fit. I'm not quite sure why they had to dye his hair blonde, nor am I quite sure exactly what branch of the KGB he came from. Maybe the Brooklyn chapter? <laughs> <laughs> he speaks five languages, Arnie. They say it in a trustworthy line. They're like, ah, he's French, but he has no accent. I'm like, uh, he has an accent, but it ain't French. He's about as French as Grace Jones is American. I mean, I don't know who's doing intel for these people, but they got the nationalities wrong. Yeah, no kidding. Christopher Walken was a huge get at the time, he had already won an Oscar. He was the first Oscar winner to be in a Bond movie. Not the last, but definitely the first. I know him from this movie first. This is my first exposure to him. I haven't seen The Dead Zone. 
I should see that one day. I've seen many other Christopher Walken movies since this movie, but this is my introduction to the guy. And you know all those quirks people do with their imitations of him and things like that? You can hear some really great Christopher Walken line readings in this movie that just accentuate what he's doing with the character. It's just a lot of fun to listen to this guy give in crazy line readings like with Get Him. <laughs> Something so simple as Get Him, he says it in a way like, dumbass get him you know without saying the word dumbass before it it's just so much fun to listen to him give these line readings for me he was a highlight of this movie despite being a christopher walken fan then and now this felt really phoned in i felt like i did not get christopher walken here given how we've seen some really over-the-top bond villains and given that christopher walken is great at over-the-top performances i came in thinking this was a perfect casting choice and that i was going to get some classic christopher walken i felt he was really tamped down this whole movie i never got the christopher walken i wanted out of it he's supposed to be an insane homicidal maniac who will kill his lover and all this i never got it i don't know if it was the director's fault or if if Walken just didn't want to be that Christopher Walken at that time. But despite my love for him, he really let me down this movie. He's bad. I'm just going to say he's bad. I can't say bad. I hear what you're saying. It's a discussion we had when we talked about Batman Returns, actually. And the fact that as much as I admire the guy, sometimes the performance... I feel like he's doing Christopher Walken, but sometimes Christopher Walken is like Christopher Walk-On. You say he goes big. I think he goes small and counterintuitive. And sometimes that just doesn't mesh with what the movie's doing. But I think that I am clouded by my nostalgia and love for him for little moments that he's not a problem for me. But I wouldn't say that he's going to rank as one of the best Bond villains ever. And that he should be is the disappointment. Yeah, the problem for me here is not living up to expectations. Yeah. He's certainly much better, in my opinion, than Stromberg, but I just wish he could have been one of the best and given a stereotypical Christopher Walken performance, which would fit Bond's aesthetic thus far so well. And what I get here is disappointing. You can tell it's pretty bad when I feel he's being shown up by Grace Jones. Wait a minute. Don't tell me you're going to not Grace Jones. My favorite thing about A View to a Kill, then and now. Oh no, I'm not knocking her in this. I'm just knocking her in general. I said she shows up Christopher Walken in this, which is a shock because I hate Grace Jones. What? How do you hate Grace Jones? All right, we're definitely going to fight. I love Grace Jones. I think that the tragedy of Grace Jones is that no movie has ever figured out how best to utilize her. She's too big for any screen you ever want to put her on. Larger than life. She is a tremendous pop star. I've seen her in concert recently. She actually is a 60 some odd year woman put on a show where she was almost entirely naked and doing all of her old stuff and it was fantastic. This woman has charisma to spare and I find that even though I went and say that this is a tremendous performance I can't take my eyes off of Grace Jones Mayday the highlight of the movie she's as good as odd job I mean if this is Goldfinger 2.0 I feel like she is the best equivocal for odd job I get that, but I just don't get her. I don't get her appeal in pop culture. I don't like her music. I find her to be a strange presence on film. I find her physicality off-putting in strange gender-bending ways with which I'm just not comfortable. She's just not masculine enough for a man, not feminine enough for a woman. She exists in this strange nether region that just is really something I've never come around to. But in this movie, did you like her? 
I'm just curious. I did, which is really surprising, as I haven't liked her ever in anything else. Because I like her in this movie, I like walking in this movie, and I understand where you guys are coming from with knowing these people from other things and what's going on with here. But in the context of this movie, I'm finding both of their performances highly enjoyable. I think Grace Jones is a extreme highlight in this movie as well. I think both of them together work for me as a pair of villains, the henchman and the villain. I think it works great. I think it's big. I think it's fun. She's loud and she absolutely radiates off the screen in this. And I think the two of them together in the certain scenes, standing next to each other, you have this wild woman and this guy who's crazy, but in a button down suit, you know, it's really kind of a nice juxtaposition, but they're both crazy. And I loved that about this villain pairing. So in the movie, I'm enjoying what they're doing very much. And I think it works as a pairing. And you know what? What I love even more is that Roger Moore gets in bed with her, but she's the one that ends up on top. I'm like, that is hilarious. I mean, if she's going to do that and it's going to be Roger Moore at this stage of the game, I love the fact that they gave her the power to be like, look, things are going to work different, James. I just want you to know. Actually, I like that scene, too. I think it works. I wouldn't ever thought that those two would ever hook up in any universe, but this scene plays well. I just think that she has so much charisma here, and I think that it wouldn't have occurred to me that she, being so avant-garde, that she would ever fit into something so formula, but they really found the right niche for her. And although View to a Kill, I'll go ahead and say it, not going to rank at the top of my favorite Bond movies, her pinchman is... I found it very weird that they had sex. Again, it just, she knows who he is, he knows who she is, and they still screw? That's confusing (laughs) on so many levels that he's in her bed, and Walken's like, go to it, and she does. No, he isn't. Walken's jealous. Walken's pissed. He was getting a karate lesson for her that looked like he was going to get some. And then she's like, well, I guess I'll go with James. I took that a different way. I took his body language as, go do him. Yeah, I got the same thing, because at that time, they didn't know 100% who he was, because the next morning, he gets identified. He has no idea they're on to him at that point. So they were still going along with the ruse. But I think it works completely. And Walken says, yeah, you got to go. Go do it. You know, do, do your duty as opposed to go have fun. That's what I took from it. And I've got to say, she's given the weirdest murder I've ever seen. Not just in a Bond movie. I think in any movie, I never thought that I would see death by butterflies <laughs> under the guise of it being a musical performance that people would enjoy at the Eiffel Tower. That you could pay to sit down at a cafe and listen to a woman whistle while... <laughs> Someone puppeteer holds up butterflies and that Mayday would know to bring her own lethal sharp metal butterflies to interject at a certain key point in the performance. This scene is really up there with the craziest of the crazy bond. And there's nothing in Moonraker that's as out of this world as this. This first started very cool because I'm actually going to Paris for the first time next year. We're planning our trip now. I'm like, there's a restaurant in the Eiffel Tower? We're going to go no matter how much it costs. They float around butterflies on fish poles and whistle at me. Maybe I can skip. (laughs) Was this a scene I missed? Would this happen between punk and grunge? Did I not know about the whistle and piano butterfly movement? I think the Carpenters released an album with it. Uh, I... (laughs) This is why some people eat Freedom Fries, I think. (laughs) Rita Coolidge was all about this. I don't know. It's crazy. This is actually a performance piece that somebody on the production saw and they put it in the movie. Obviously, why else would they get it? What gets me also about it is the guy who she kills is almost a clown. He's so crazy and he's 
big and his characterizations of that giant mustache and all that too. And his lips don't match his words at all. That really bothered me. He was the worst overdub ever. Yeah, it doesn't work. So it's a really bizarre murder. It does lead to a pretty cool chase up the Eiffel Tower, though. Does it? Does it really? Yeah, it does. I say it leads to a cool escape from the Eiffel Tower, but a chase implies one person running after another. I didn't see that. Did I watch the wrong movie? I saw one person stand at the bottom of a flight of stairs and trip because his legs got tangled and he's very old, but... <laughs> I didn't see a chase. Yeah, the base jumping is awesome. Watching Grace Jones leap in slow-mo out into nothing off the Eiffel Tower is a great shot. They used it in the music video. It's one of the images that I recall when I think about this movie. It's a great moment. James Bond's portion of that chase is lacking. It's not what I'm paying attention to. And that's probably going to be true for throughout the whole movie is that my eyes are not on more. If you're talking about the chase being when he steals the cab and says, follow that parachute, the car chase was every bit as cool as I had expected it to be when I was 10 years old and watching the video on MTV. That car chase where the car just keeps getting demolished rocks. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a really great scene through Paris. The car getting knocked to pieces is fun. I don't care it's not Roger Moore in the car when the thing gets thing because I'm having so much fun watching the car get destroyed. It is a great chase. Yes. And this is the thing that keeps them on his tail. Had she not committed this murder, I'm not sure that Bond would have ever gotten to Silicon Valley. Honestly. I feel like because she did this butterfly death thing, they now have an actual crime they can hold on to. That Bond sees her and walking in a speedboat, getting away, and so from that point on, can go and say, we're going to catch the murderer of this man. And so that's what drives him even when nothing in the plot is telling him that there's anything relevant he needs to investigate. Because what we spend time on for the next half hour is whether or not Walken gives his horses steroids. I don't even get why she kills this guy. He seems so inconsequential and not really that full of information. And he gives all the clues before she kills him anyway. So the entire murder was nonsense to me. Yes, we're told that he has already been investigating Zoran and what he's telling Bond are suspicions and half implications. There's no smoking gun, there's no evidence, and there's certainly nothing about microchips. So I don't know why they would have to take the step. If I were going to kill anyone in this, I would have killed the woman whistling. I would not have killed him. If you're going to kill somebody for a plot point like that, then you might as well kill Stacey Sutton. Why buy this person off? If you know you need to get her oil rig or whatever her reason is for getting bought off, I buy her off. Just kill her off. And if you're willing to kill a guy in a restaurant, who's going to spill the beans to Bond? So if you want to talk about a problem with a plot, that's the problem with the plot. Because the guy here is clearly just to get to the action scene at the Eiffel Tower. And I wouldn't have a problem killing Tanya Roberts. I got to say, when we rank the Bond girls, maybe a little bit better than Goodnight. Maybe. I have to say that what she did is make it so that when we finally get to Denise Richards, I'll be easier on her. <laughs> because I now see that there's a tradition of ditzy women supposed to be serious scientists. Oh, James. I think that was her only line. Oh, James. Oh, she actually screamed, James, in desperation. A lot in the fire scene. She became really annoying. I hoped he would leave her. Yeah, I got a lot of Kate Capshaw Temple of Doom off her too here. No, that's a fair comment. That movie would have already been out. They did that may have been a model, but then again, as Arnie has pointed out, we've seen this a lot. But this is one of the worst incarnations. She's just annoying. And yes, why would they try to buy her off for five million dollars when they have May Day and could take her to the car wash and be done with it? 
yeah, she is so inconsequential to this plot. She doesn't feel deserving to be a Bond girl. That she goes down into the mines with Bond later on. I'm like, what the hell? This is just there because we need a woman to be there. But it makes no damn sense. Completely agree with you. There's no reason for this character to be in this movie besides having a girl as a Bond girl in this movie. Stacy is a minimal part of this first half of the thing, and the horse racing stuff, it's curious to me. I'm hanging on to it because it does remind me of the part of Diamonds Are Forever, the novel I liked, and it's kind of fun. You know, there's a lot of Grace Jones and Walk in here, so I care about this part, but yeah, it is a strange middle of this movie. When they go to California, I do feel like the movie takes an incredible Incredible steeplechase dip into something that I don't want to watch. But the first part is a curiosity. I'm not going to say it's going to rank as one of the best plots, but, you know, when they have Patrick McNee and Roger Moore running around the manor investigating the stables, I'm watching, I'm paying attention, I'm semi-enjoying it all. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I'm actually having a good time. I think part of it is just the 80s kind of feel to it, the style, having actors who I do know, and just the overall pace. And I actually really like the wild horse chase. I'm having a lot of fun with all the really silly traps Christopher Walken is setting. Like, I'm going to jump, but now it has to be three times as high for you. Yeah, I like the steeplechase. I like the whole bit with the two of them having those characters. I actually like the scene when they're looking for bugs in the room and they use a tape recorder. I think that's cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really glad you used that word because I am having fun watching this entire first part of this movie very much. I had a lot of fun watching it. I understand there's a bit of a disconnect, Stuart, from the second half or the first half. I see the link. I'm fine with it being like two separate parts of the movie. But I get what your point is. But yes, there's fun to be had here. And I'm really glad you guys said that because I thought I was going to be the only person to mention that it's actually fun to watch this part. Yeah, we're all on board for Roger Moore. We've all recommended Roger Moore movies. And I think if you've liked any Roger Moore, some of the things here in this first hour are on par with it. I mean, I really think that this movie might have a bad rap. I think the bad rap comes with the second half and the craziness that they get to. It's not this first half. Much like Moonraker, before we get that taste of outer space, it's grounded in some campy, silly Roger Moore adventures and Moore's too old and yes there's problems but overall I do not feel like this is not recommendable for the first part. I do have one question though about this first half. Can you think of any less efficient attack than sitting in the back of a car and waiting for a car wash? Because if you knock somebody out in the driver's seat, the car's still going to be ejected from the car wash. Are you going to get out while it's still wet? I think there have to be better times to stage the attack. I'm just sitting there, I thought she killed him, and I'm like, the car's just gonna go out and have a corpse. It's going to draw attention to itself when the car does not drive out of the car wash. That scene, I don't know about logic or not, but that scene terrified me as a kid. It got to the point where I didn't want to go in those kinds of car washes because I would think about that scene and would fear that someone would pop out in the backseat and strangle me. It messed me up! That's funny because I live day to day with the fear that I'm going to turn around and Grace Jones is going to be there. You're afraid of clowns, I'm afraid of Grace Jones. (laughs) Understandably. Stuart, the actor Patrick Knee, 
admits that he cannot go through car washes because of the scene. Oh, really? It's kind of like the psycho shower scene. I get it. As the kid, it affected me. And of course, now I'm just recalling that memory. I don't know that it plays correctly as an adult if you were seeing it for the first time. But I can tell you, a 12-year-old boy was frightened by this scene. Yeah, I liked it as a kid, too. Stuart, I have a question for you, though, because you are the guy here on the podcast who tells us about tarantulas and gold paint killing people, etc. Can you breathe underwater by taking the air out of a car's tire. (laughs) Would you want to? Would you want your lips to touch that tire? (laughs) Because I thought for years that, oh, I've never sunk in a car, and I'll roll down the windows to make sure I can open that door, but James Bond taught me how to breathe if I'm ever trapped underwater with a car. And I have no idea if I could do that or not. Well, I want to. It makes me think about trying it out. It gives a kid bad ideas. I can say that much. <laughs> These are how children drown. Really, because they see movies and think, well, I'll just stay underwater for half an hour because I'll breathe through the tire. Nope. Well, let's just really hope their parents aren't putting the nitrogen in the tires. That is now the newfangled <laughs> thing to do because then they're really screwed. Yeah. I don't know. I totally buy it within the crazy logic of this movie. All of these scenes are fun. And hey, did you notice... Grace Jones got her boyfriend a cameo in this, too. Dolph Lundgren, I did not know he was in this. And when there's that scene, I mean, I just apparently know his face, even when he's on screen for like a quarter second. I'm like, that's Dolph Lundgren. And I immediately expect him to have a big part because you don't say no to Gogol, right? You say no to Gogol, it's going to mean some bad crap. And so I thought that he would come in as a third faction. I was very disappointed that he's on screen for like a quarter second. Not to mention, when you have blonde muscle guys, they're usually a big heavy here. But I I guess they didn't need him. But he certainly could have played a red grand if they ever wanted one yeah he's just there on the set that day because he was dating grace jones some guy wasn't there he put him in the movie that's all it was huh. he wasn't in rocky yet rocky comes out later this year mm. 85 so rocky 4 i should specify when i read that trivia it just astounded me astounded me that grace jones could date someone less masculine than her Here's the thing. I love what Grace Jones represents. I love that she is, to me, the epitome of 80s style. But damn, the bitch frightens me. Yeah, no, I think that's part of her allure. I mean, she's everything that Lady Gaga wishes she could be. She is a pop star that wants to be more threatening, more out there, more provocative than the other pop stars. She's not just selling sex. She's selling danger. And she sells it very convincingly. So, I'm agreeing with you, Stuart. I'm having a good time, even though I'm realizing this horse race thing's a little silly, but I'm having a good time with it. And then, all of a sudden, we get to the States, and we see a blimp flying over the Golden Gate Bridge, and we get, what a view, to a kill. To a snore. I gotta say, this movie gets boring and quick when it's not in this scene. I mean, I actually like the blimp. I think as far as cool layers go, a blimp's kind of fun. I'm with it. It's no volcano. It's no monastery on the top of the cliff. It's not one of my favorites, but it's a good one. I like it. It's memorable. This was the moment where I absolutely got Goldfinger. Like, before, I don't know that in my head watching it, I was like, this is like Goldfinger. But when he lays out his plans for Operation Main Strike, I'm like, well, this is exactly like Operation Grand Slam. This is Goldfinger. And then the one guy that gets up and says he doesn't want to do it and they go kill him, I'm like, oh, I totally get this now. If it wasn't clear before, here's where they really say, okay, now we're in America. We're going to do this hit on this industry that has the monopoly so that it will give this guy domination of his industry. It's Goldfinger through and through here. 
I agree completely. I thought he was going to kill the one guy the one way and then kill everybody else the other way. Right. That's the big difference is they don't make the mistake that we all noticed that he killed the one guy. And if they did kill everybody else, they cut away, which is good. So they improved on the scene. What really is surprising to me is that just a few months after this, one of my favorite movies, Real Genius, came out and had like an identical plot with an identical microchip. I've seen a lot of microchips in my day, but with the little spot on its back like a black widow like this has, and the switching of the microchips for the laser, I can't believe. I think somebody was listening in on somebody else's writer's room. Are you implying that James Bond needs to steal from Val Kilmer? Val the Saint Kilmer? Roger Moore is going to take from his saint? I just don't believe this. Val Kilmer could never influence Bond. Well, it could be the other way around, but... This movie did come out first by a couple of months, but it probably took longer to film, too. I love this stupid line, does anyone else want to drop out? I think that's the perfect thing to say at that moment. I love it every single time I hear it. It is a Bond kind of joke, even though the villain says it, but I liked it. I think it works. I think when the guy falls out, it's fun. The entire thing works for me. And I realize I'm still going with this movie more than you guys are. But this scene with the guy and that last line, it just makes me have a giant grin on my face. No, 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 Brock. I'm with the movie up until this point, but it is at this point when Bond shows up. And there's all this stuff about him scuba arounding oil wells and meeting an old spy flame. And his assistant is this CIA agent in a fish market. All these scenes are really dull. And yeah, this is the point where we get to know state and hate Stacy. I feel like this middle of View to a Kill is as bad as anything in any Bond other than maybe Never Say Never Again and Diamonds Are Forever. It's more than it's just bad. It's dull. I don't want to watch anything that's happening. I try to stay with it. I really do. When they're in that all marble but highly flammable building, I'm trying to stick with it. When they're having the shootout at the plantation, I'm trying to get into the spirit of at least it was an action scene and I couldn't remember when the last one was. But I just am not going with it. And I get really confused when Bond sleeps with a Russian chick. I don't even understand why that happens. They were doing a recording that didn't even have anything incriminating about Walken's plan. It alluded to things, and Bond switched it out with Kyoto music so that the Russians don't have it. Work with the Russians! If the Russians want to get this guy, and you want to get this guy, and you've worked with the Russians before on these projects, I say let Gogol and this woman be your friend and make it happen. I'd much rather have him finish out the rest of this adventure with the Russian spy woman than with Stacy. I thought that's what would happen, too, until Bond didn't sleep with Stacy. When we see that that scene where they wake up the next morning and he's not in her bed he's sitting vigil I'm like oh shit <laughs> she's the one who lives <laughs> I agree with you that I would have had the Russian girl stick around longer I enjoy the oil rig scene I like the murder I like to catch the wrong guy I like Bond's thing with the fan, the whirling thing. I really liked that entire sequence, and it makes sense to, you know, the 30-something Brock, the 10-year-old Brock, didn't really understand why the scene was in the movie. But here it makes sense that the KGB wants him as bad as the MI6 do. Should they have worked together? Yes! Yes! But they didn't do that. And so we get a gag line and a gag scene, much like the one in Octopussy when Magda sleeps with Bond to get the egg. Here, it's just reversed that Bond actually gets one up on the girl and gets the tape. 
So that's all. I don't mind it as much here. I'm still with the movie with David Yip, whatever his name was, the Wuhan from Temple of Doom, whatever, the guy. I would have liked Felix Leiter, honestly, but, you know, what are you going to do with San Francisco, the Chinatown thing? I guess that's why they went there. I thought they went there just so they could kill him. They don't kill Felix because he keeps coming back. That's definitely good. I do feel like there's definitely been a trend recently of these little helpers coming in, having one <laughs> little bit, and then getting bumped off. Those assistants, even the Indian guy in Octopussy, I just feel like they get one or two moments, they may not even help out, and then they're bumped out. Patrick McNee in the same movie about 20 minutes before. But I did like him. The difference is it was fun to watch him play butler to Bond or get bossed around. This guy just doesn't make an impression at all, which leads you to believe, well, why write him in here? I guess it was in the Mad Lib. Chinese guy at fish market. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody in the back yelled that out and they said, okay. I didn't start getting tired of the movie until the City Hall fire. The City Hall fires and then the chase afterwards of the fire truck is where I said to myself, okay, this is silly, stupid, and I don't care. I kind of liked that chase, though. It reminded me of Beverly Hills Cop in some weird way. Well, because he's hanging outside the truck in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, and all the police cars are smashing up, and it's a major wreck. I thought they were getting pretty close to that kind of vibe, but they didn't quite pull off the energy. Well, the cops ruined it for me, and then the insert shots. Talk about Bond not being Roger Moore and just having Roger Moore do insert shots. This was the epitome of it. Yeah, if we did the drinking game, this is where the alcohol poisoning becomes a real factor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, someone's stomach is getting pumped because even at the time then in theaters, I remember feeling like this chase was labored and it was obvious. Even I was going, that's not Roger Moore. I mean, it is. When you're asking him to hang off the back of a out-of-control fire engine whose ladder is swinging to and fro, you know that that is not the man that is playing Bond. It's painful. This scene does nothing for me. Having Bond run from the San Francisco police department is not the plot I signed up for. It just feels like a chase for Chase's sake and not a good one at all. See, I thought they were trying to call back to Peppa. They were. That's not good. Yeah. (laughs) But it's in the vein of what we've seen before. But we didn't like it before, and I still don't like it here. A little bit of pepper would have gone a long way, but they kept on pouring it on. Here, they actually had a coda after Bond had escaped with the bridges, the cars coming down the top bridge, and the cop giving those scowls on his face that we completely didn't need at all. We didn't need it, but I was really feeling nervous for those two cops there. I'm like, how could they survive the fall? They're going to get really bad whiplash at the very least. I felt bad for them. You know, would have been it better would be have Mahoney and the police academy people do that hijinks, and that would have been more acceptable to me. But instead we have, look how stupid the cops are for no reason at all, because they don't factor into the plot whatsoever. They don't, but for some reason it worked for me. The scene, maybe just because it was bringing back similar 80s movies, it kind of worked for me. It's the only thing that really did. It's the first thing that brought me back to the movie after a half an hour of crap. I just admire the restraint of them not using the slide whistle when the fire engine jumps the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. But I will say this. If you want to hook me back, one of the tropes of an 80s action scene that I always love and still do, and they have here when we get to the climax, is get a water pump. 
and pump <laughs> tunnels full of water. I loved it in Temple of Doom. I love it at the earthquake ride at Universal. Anytime you want to flood a set, a big old set, and have people hanging on while water rushes past them, always a winner for me. Always going to love it. And so the movie wins me back with a crazy climax. But this middle stinks. What's funny is I didn't go with the climax at all. Once I realized that the plot is pump water and then set off bombs... I mean, let's try and follow this here. So they are trying to instigate a earthquake. And the way to do that is to flood a fault line with water from two reservoirs. Did Mr. Wizard do an experiment on this? Is there any documentation on how to start an earthquake? I'd like Mythbusters to try this, but if they did, California would fall in the ocean. <laughs> I think it's written by L. Luther actually. <laughs> but in all seriousness, from what I understand from Stacy Sutton, geologist, there are two different plates that they're not supposed to go off. There's a buffer that stops the two fault lines from going off simultaneously. If you destroy that little buffer, both earthquakes can happen simultaneously, a double earthquake, therefore making a giant mess. And that's what he's trying to destroy with the bombs. What prevents the two plates from going simultaneously into earthquake? Honestly, if they had even just done this in a diagram or as a computer model, if they had gotten the old little Apple 2E out there and said, this is what will happen, I might have even gone with this more. But it was confusing because why not just have them flood Silicon Valley? I mean, the whole idea that they're going to pump a bunch of water to then trigger an earthquake, I mean, it just seemed a little too convoluted. But I don't care because once the bombs are going off and the mines are flooding and Mayday is trying to climb up and chase them while the water's rushing by, all this stuff, I'm one back, but I don't know if it's enough to get me back after that sad second 40 minutes an hour. This was a bit of a controversy at the time as well, because not only does he flood the tunnels full of people, but he takes out Uzis and starts shooting people. I like that. Yeah, I liked it too. I thought it worked for the movie perfectly well. And remember I mentioned to you guys that my parents wouldn't let me watch For Your Eyes Only because of the intensity and the violence, yet I was allowed to watch this one. <laughs> so so was this a controversy in the public or just in the Brock house? No, no, no. Not, not in the Brock house <laughs> at all, actually. With Roger Moore and the filmmakers. Because he says, we haven't had that sort of thing in Bond movies before, such a blatant killing of people. He's like he's taking a fish in a barrel. And he had a problem with it. And it made a bit of a stir. But Goldfinger, they were going to poison a whole town or whatever. I guess it was sleeping age. I mean, they've had people with mass killing plots before. I think maybe it's weird for more, but Connery would have gone for it. But the difference is that the plot was that, but they didn't succeed. Here we see a man and his cohort mow down maybe 100 people in front of them and then all those people in the tunnels. You see what I mean? They actually did do it. Yeah, we see bodies. We see bullets go into people and fall. Yeah, it is a shocker that it's so violent. And it really sells us. If we weren't by Walken's kind of weird presence, we haven't seen him kill anybody himself yet, we finally see that he doesn't rely on Mayday, that he himself can be that cold-blooded. The whole line of a convenient coincidence was, I thought, delivered well. I was surprised he didn't turn the gun on his little lackey right there. That guy, he survives until the blimp. I was surprised about that. Yeah, that guy is so pointless. Agreed. His name's Scarpeen. I gotta ask, did he have that name before he had the scar on his left cheek? Because that was the only thing they gave us that made you pay attention to him at all. I was just, okay, yeah, all right, you have a scarred henchman. Uh, it was very uncreative, but I forgive him because they had made it. 
I was also confused by the old man who shows up in the second half of the film. He was in the first half of the film. He was the guy at the horse track who was the steroid guy. Yeah. I knew he was the steroid guy creator. I didn't catch him in the first half of the film. He really started to draw my attention basically after Walken kills everybody else. Then no one else is left. Yeah, sure. I love Mayday's turn here. Normally, I might kind of groan and did groan when Jaws ended up helping out James Bond at the end of Moonraker. I totally buy into her transformation into an ally at the end here. And when she works the crane and hauls his ass and the bomb out there and even sacrifices herself, I love that look. That final shot she gets in the movie where she looks up at the blimp with the screw you face. I really feel like this is Grace Jones' finest moment in the film. I totally agree. I mean, you've heard what I've said about Grace Jones so far. But once she makes this turn, it's believable and I like it. And I like her self-sacrifice at the end. Yeah. I completely go with it and a character who I've actually enjoyed despite the fact that she freaks me out the rest of the movie. Here, she actually goes from caricature to character. You compared her to Odd Job, but at no point does Odd Job become human. She becomes human at this point and I suddenly mourn her death. Well, she was the first Bond girl. It should be pointed out she slept with Bond first. She had to die by the rules. There was the chick in the sub who helped him take off his boots because he couldn't bend over that far. Yeah, but it doesn't count. doesn't count. <laughs> and unkind. <laughs> but yes, it doesn't count. But... <laughs> She was a double whammy because she was a henchman and the first Bond girl. We knew she had to die. I didn't expect it to be moving. I didn't expect it to have an impact, particularly in a movie as crazy silly as this. But it really is an emotionally charged moment. I honestly thought when you said you didn't expect it to be moving, I thought you meant you expected her to die standing still because <laughs> Roger Moore couldn't chase her. I'm trying to be nice to Roger Moore. I can't attack Roger Moore for being 57 years old. I blame him for... No, I don't because he got paid. But I do blame the producer for not giving a more youthful bond at this point. It was their fault for bringing him back. He did what he was going to do. I felt it like it was all about breaking a record or something. You know, because like, Connery did six official ones. This is Yeah. That has to be what it is. Because, again, they had nothing about they were going to replace him. Nothing at all. He was coming back for this bar none, and it's batshit crazy, considering he wanted to retire two films ago. Yeah, he should have gone out with For Your Eyes Only, no doubt. Absolutely, and he wanted to. Anyway, so I liked Grace Jones's face when she sees the blimp. And right before she blows up, that she was like all almost adrenalized by the whole thing, you know, get Zoran for me. And then she turns steel face. It's like they make eye contact. Loved that moment. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite one in the whole movie, I think. And then my least favorite moment. Oh, James. Oh, damn. You're still alive. And you're grabbed by a blimp. And I'm going to grab onto the blimp to go save you? This is all the wrong choices. All he had to say was, Stacy, slow moving blimp behind you. <laughs> I can't imagine being overtaken by a blimp. I can't imagine in what circumstance I would not know that a giant zeppelin is coming right at me. She was really too stupid to live. But you know what? I love the chase as a child. And even now, as absurd as it is, I love the fact that we end up tethered to the Golden Gate Bridge. I actually really cheered for that. When they try to slam him into the Golden Gate Bridge and he anchors them to it, that was kind of fun. And the silly axe fight on the Golden Gate Bridge is fun, too, or on the bad facsimile of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, totally. An example of a good walking moment in this is he laughs as he falls over. I mean, that's counterintuitive. You wouldn't think the villain would think it's hilarious that he's slipping, but he does. He gives a laugh because it's all over. 
I agree with you, Stuart. I think that was really a nice moment that he realizes this is it. This is how it's going to go out. I thought that was really kind of fun as well. And what I loved before he died, we talked about this with Octopussy. He tells the guy, his henchman, go out there and get him. And the guy looks at him like, same thing as Gobinda did. He's like, wait, you crazy? But he didn't have a chance to like not go out because Stacy knocks him out. I'm like, okay, he gets out of it. Okay, good. Zoran has to, you know, follow through for himself. Why make a henchman go out there? Go out there yourself, you jerk. And so he had to go. Yeah, and more to the point, we as audiences don't care about that scar-faced man. We want to see Walken in a mano-mano with Roger Moore. We want to see how that's going. The effects at the time, even then, this blue screen stuff's really bad. I wish that they had gotten some stunt people to actually be up there. Maybe that would have been too cost prohibitive, but this fight is not very convincing, but we've earned it, and even in its over-the-top silliness, I enjoy it even now. The permits and stuff to get people to fight up there were difficult to get. They got people up there for some long shots and things. They actually used the Fuji blimp for the long shots against the bridge, yada yada, but they actually filmed the entire thing up there. They wouldn't allow that. Yeah. There's good reasons not to do it. I'm just saying by doing it the way they did, it really calls attention to how fake it looks. Yeah. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend A View to a Kill? Stuart. God, I mean, I am so glad that we're at the end of the Roger Moore era because it is becoming impossible for me to categorize or feel a difference between them at this point. I don't know. Did you like any Roger Moore? It's got some of the same good stuff that all of his movies do. It's got the same horrible points that all his movies do. To what ratio will depend on the viewer. You know, this one's steeped in nostalgia. So there's something about it that I'm going to deeply enjoy, even though the adult me, if I came to this fresh, would be mortified. I don't think that this is a particularly good movie, but I cannot call it a bad movie either. It is just kind of floating there right on that cusp. I don't know. Do I recommend this? Oh my god, let me, alright, I'll go through real quick. Duran Duran, uh, Mayday, Grace Jones, Walking. I mean, no. I'm going to say no, and I'm going to say it's because Bond is not up to the task. I'm coming down on the weakest of not recommends because Moore is not able to have the kind of fun he normally does with these crazy adventures. He's too old. He wears this movie down. If it had been somebody else with his kind of jovial, youthful vitality, I could have gone over that hump. But Moore ultimately kills this one for me. I'm going to say weak not recommend. Arnie. I'm right where I was last week with Never Say Never Again. It's so close because, again, I have fun with a lot of this movie. But, yeah, there is a lot of this movie that really wears out its welcome, too. And I'm trying to decide also, like you did, Stuart... Which way do I go on this? Because it's so close. Yeah, the teeter-totter is on the middle, really. I mean, on one hand, I got Walken and Grace Jones and Duran Duran. On the other side, it's Tanya Roberts and Roger Moore and the middle of this movie. But Roger Moore isn't toxic. I really do enjoy the scenes with him and his fake butler at the horse race. I do enjoy some of his line deliveries. I'm going to come down on the side of recommend. It's one of the better Roger Moore Bonds, because most of them have been shit. And Duran Duran is what makes it the slam dunk. It's the best song, and so I will watch this movie. (laughs) Although, I do say, Duran Duran, best Bond song? Can we all agree it was perhaps the worst scored version of a Bond song? Every time they tried to bring in the ballad version of it for the love scenes, it kind of distracted me. But, what the hell, recommend. I can't agree with that, but I understand it, it kind of stuck out, but it's not the worst. 
That's not the worst for me, but yeah. I'm going to give us a recommend as well. Ten-year-old Brock would have said, hell yeah! Or maybe awesome or radical, actually. But, you know, late 30s Brock here says, it's a weak movie, but I have a lot of fun watching it. That's all there is to it. Yes, I agree with Stuart that there is nostalgia here for me, and I am seeing this movie as objectively as possible when I completely see its flaws. I understand it is a flawed movie. But at the end of the day, and you know where I'm going with this when I say the words at the end of the day, do I enjoy watching this movie? The answer is yes. And there's more positives here than negatives. I agree with Arnie. I don't think Roger Moore is anywhere as toxic as people say he is in this movie. I think, yes, it's not him in a lot of it. But when he is standing up to Zorin in City Hall, I liked his line readings. I didn't mind it at all. I loved what he did with Patrick McNee. I loved the scene when he's galloping alongside the car, screaming, and it's May Day there. Those kind of moments work there are bond moments in this movie i enjoyed the villains the plot is batshit crazy but you know what it's a lot of fun to watch so yeah i give it a recommend it is a weaker recommend but uh, i'm happy to say that it's an enjoyable ride to be very clear though folks this is not a great movie but it certainly is fun enough to recommend well was roger moore a great bond i mean i'm gonna look back at the whole terrain this is the last one you know last time we were able to survey the all of connery and this is all of Moore, barring a surprise cameo in Skyfall, I don't think we're going to see Roger Moore in a Bond movie again. So there's no more, you're saying? There is no more, and I'm going to say never. So I think Roger Moore is way more consistent than Sean Connery, which is to say that I feel like his highs weren't that high and his lows weren't nearly as low. That he kind of made the same movie again and again, and every single one of them I enjoyed at least one facet of. All of them have a fun quality that I totally dig. And none of them were as good as From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He never had a great one. But he always had fun. And I did have fun with a few of them. Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only, Live and Let Die. I think those were the highlights for me. And yeah, I guess Moonraker was the worst. But even that one I can't dog on. I think his lows were the lowest of the lows. And I doubt we're going to get as low again as we get with The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. I hope we never get that low again. My fear coming in was that it was like a roller coaster where we start with the steep decline and then gradually climb back up. The movies are more consistent, but he was in a really poor time of Bond having a dearth of creativity. We just talked every time. Oh, now they're making this movie with James Bond. Now they're making that movie with James Bond. Here's the thing. More the performer, I think, is a really good Bond. But the scripts they gave him were just lazy shit. So... Is Moore a good Bond? Yes. Is he better than Connery? I might have said yes until I saw Never Say Never Again and just saw the later years Connery swagger. But is his era going to rank as the best? His era may rank as the worst for me just because of the movies. I think that he is a good Bond. I do enjoy a lot of what he does. I know he has a reputation for being jokey, but I've seen really great Bond moments in every single movie. I'm surprised none of you guys mentioned The Man with the Golden Gun as a low point in this Roger Moore. I thought that was one of the weaker films we watched in Roger Moore's canon. I was already on record saying For Your Eyes Only is my favorite of his, and I put that right up there with a great Connery movie, Stuart. I think For Your Eyes Only is Roger Moore's finest hour. Octopussy is certainly another one of my favorites of Roger Moore's. I do think that 
with the shenanigans of Moonraker in the second half, we forget about how strong the first half was and how incredible the opening sequence was, especially if you know how they did it. And Spy Who Loved Me, even though we all dogged on it a lot, there are some great sequences in it. And so for me, the pinnacle, the low point of the low was A Man with a Golden Gun for me. I find that the most boring one of all of them that we've watched for Roger Moore. And I think his bond there was not really developed yet as well. So that's where I would go for low. And I think Roger Moore's bond, yes, is different, but I think it's fitting. I really liked what he did. I agree with Arnie a little bit that some of the scripts were pretty lame, but it's the same thing over and over again. But what your complaint about a good Bond, bad scripts is not what I would say for Roger Moore. So I like him as Bond, and I think it's a different character with him doing it, but with every Bond actor we're going to see, there are consistencies, and they all are able to bring a certain Bond quality, and they all lean to the left or to the right of that middle that every one of them understands. And you can put that scene in Moonraker when he shoots the guy in the tree up there with any Connery moment of Bond that he's just badass in. Roger Moore can be badass. He had less of them, but he had them. When he had them, they hit big time. I'm not able to say is Connery better than Moore or vice versa. They are very different characters to me, even though they both go by the name James Bond. I can only say this much. Roger Moore is better in the comedic, lightweight James Bond movies than Connery was. Roger Moore would have been better in Diamonds Are Forever than Connery was. And maybe Connery would have been better in For Your Eyes Only. It's hard to say. They were just different characters. I appreciated sampling both. My preference is Connery, but I can't say that one's better than the other. It's just two different things. And I'm excited we're going to get something else now, next time. Yes, we start the Timothy Dalton duology. (laughs) Poor guy. He couldn't even get a third one. Yeah. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to our archive section and find the other James Bond movie retrospective episodes we've done there at nowplayingpodcast.com. You'll also find a link to our forums where you can enter the conversation with other fans like yourself, as well as join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, where fans have given us feedback and we talk back and forth about your opinions on these James Bond movies. And if you're a horror fan, we've done a couple one-offs for the season. You know, we don't like to do so much that isn't horror related in October. We had a vote. We have both movies, or rather two of the three we have decided to do. We've already released Cabin in the Woods. And now, because there were so many people clamoring for it, and because it is the season, and because we are in a generous mood, we are doing Trick or Treat this week. Sorry, Zombieland fans. We're not doing that one this year, but we are going to do the runner-up. There were none. It, it, it really sucked in the vote. There were a hundred and something. There was a few. Let's also remember, though, two more weeks till Halloween. Halloween, Halloween. Two more weeks till Halloween. Donate to Now Playing. That means you have two more weeks to donate to Now Playing and hear our Night of the Living Dead reviews, the $15 recommended donation. You get the six George Romero ones, $25. You also get the three remakes. And on November 1st, they go back in the vault. And despite last week was Never Say Never Again, I can say that we never plan on releasing them again. So two weeks to donate to Now Playing if you want to hear those as well as support our show. If you don't like horror, you don't want to hear those, but you're enjoying what we're doing with Bond and what we're going to be doing next year with some of those series that are coming out. (laughs) How nonspecific of you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, some of those that aren't Bond or horror. If you've enjoyed our previous output of superhero movies, horror movies, and sci-fi movies, 
donate to support us and keep us on the air. It's your support. I can honestly say that I am literally putting my blood, sweat, and tears into those $25 donation Romero remake shows. Listen in to find out. And please head over to Books and Nachos where you can hear Stuart and I review the original Ian Fleming James Bond novels and short stories. We're not doing the continuation, just the original Fleming ones that inspired the movies we're talking about. Well, some of them anyway. And you can hear all of that at booksandnachos.com. Now playing will return with The Living Daylights. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. The world would think it a natural disaster, and Zorn would hold a monopoly on the microchip market. <laughs> I was wondering if you were laughing or not, because it got quiet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plastics! That's what I come back to is the graduate. Zorin then tries to make his fast getaway on a blimp. <laughs> He's not having a good year. Just for the record, I heard the Goodyear pun. <laughs> I didn't laugh, but I heard it. I got it. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't expect anybody to laugh. That's a groaner if ever there was one. But if this is their swan song, then I'm celebrating it. Yeah, I agree with that, Stuart. I got no problem there. I, I did have something to say that was pertinent, and I completely forgot. Never forget it. Shh. Here, let me respond back then. And with the surfing bird, or I'm sorry, with the surfing USA song popped in there. California girls. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> But do you want me to do it, or do you want the people on the forums to do it? <laughs> no, no, no. I know I'm not saying Jesus Christ to you. I'm saying Jesus Christ how many Beach Boy songs are about surfing. <laughs> and I expect her to say to Zoran, You can take my land, but leave my horses. Is that a Gone with the Wind quote? Yeah, it's attempting to be a really bad one, yeah. Mm. Okay. It's a bad impression. It, I don't know if it's the quote. It's most certainly that. All right. It's actually a Teen Wolf quote that I th I thought might have been from God with the Wind. Wow. Wow. No kidding. I will yeah. never go hungry again. You should go for one of the more obvious ones. So Ben said this. The, is that Styles? Who was that? Boof? Who? Are you? <laughs> it's it's uh it's the blonde chick when he she and Teen Wolf are doing their play. Ah, uh, I see. Thought there and they were playing with some southern plantation, and I, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind in fifteen years, so I can't remember if that's part of it or not. But, but, but Teen Wolf, <laughs> it's always a hand away. You just reach out in the air and plug that one out. Yeah, me too. We the same comment. That's great. <laughs> Where do you go after Teen Wolf? Yeah, I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I strongly not recommend Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> Agreed, but strong Agreed. recommend on Teen Wolf. I, yeah, I'd be like, I want to go on a um, on a big truck and surf right now after hearing Teen Wolf. I want to do that retrospective. Want a kick. But Teen Wolf? Yes. There's two. I, yeah. <laughs> and one of them's god awful. It's the only one I've ever seen. But it's a big hit on MTV right now. Oh, the show. Maybe you can review the cartoon on, on over on Venganza <laughs> Gazette and you can like do every episode of the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, if you agree to do every episode of the cartoon, I'll do it. <laughs> Silence. Crickets. How's that whole thing going? I'm down. I'll do it just like I did Spider-Man. I'll review the first one and say I'm doing the rest. <laughs> How's that turning out? Ask me after we get through Bond. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me start that over. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that was 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I could have watched Gone with the Wind by the time we get done with this. I'm going to watch Teen Wolf. <laughs> I've actually read the book of Gone with the Wind, too, and yet I still can't remember a quote besides, frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn, and I really remember that from the toy more than Gone with the Wind. Oh, yeah, I had all those Gone with the Wind dolls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the club string, and Mammy comes out, and... <laughs> My burning plantation playset was awesome. <laughs> do you guys want to talk about Vito to Kill? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we do. <laughs> We just want to riff about every other movie except of you to a kill, like Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf came out around the same time. We could just switch over and just talk Teen Wolf for an hour. Yeah, like we do have to get back to this. We could do a Tiny Robert retrospective. Anybody ever seen Sheena? She was actually in the Beastmaster, which is how she got this job, which I haven't seen yet. 
That comes right after our Wishmaster retrospective. I'm hoping my eyesight goes out before we get to those movies. <laughs> like Money Penny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll be in the frilly pink dress being like, okay, let's do Teen Wolf 2. After all the things that it has driven through, after all the horse manure, I feel the exact same way about Grace Jones. <laughs> but, but, Stuart, in a defense of the tire, it was just washed. <laughs> and I cannot say that about Grace Jones. <laughs> to character, you compared her to Oddball and... Job. A job. <laughs> you are consistent, though, I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> I am having fun watching this entire fart part. Yes, it's kind of a... The entire fart? <laughs> the fart part. <laughs> the entire... <laughs> the old farts walking around here in the movie. <laughs> Money Penny again? Two more weeks till Halloween, Halloween, <laughs> Halloween. Two more weeks till Halloween. Donate to now playing. Slow down. I can't do that fast. <laughs> bloop, 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 bloop. Woo, you wear me out. I'm like Roger Moore. Damn. I got to sit that down. <laughs> You're older than when we did Halloween series and you could keep up with me. <laughs> I guess not.